Hey everyone, just a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help us move up in the search rankings so we can reach more cyclists. You can also support us by sharing our podcast with your friends or on social media. Thanks for listening. Here's the episode. Hello and welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Todd, what's going on today? So today we're going to talk a little bit more about polarized training as an alternative to our typical training with our seven zones and focusing on the different zones over time and building up that way with a typical periodized approach. So we started with a preem lap that was a polarized training study, and now we're convinced there needs to be a whole episode. We've talked a lot about training with seven different zones, zone one through seven, where one is recovery and seven is maximal effort. Your threshold is zone four. I'm going to break that a little bit because with the polarized training studies, they compress the zones and they really talk about three main zones. So I'll, I'll map it across to the zones that we've been talking about and referencing in previous episodes so we're not confused and we are on the same footing at least when we start the episode here. So when we talk about the polarized training approach, we break it down into three different training zones. Zone one is effectively an endurance zone. So that would be equivalent in what we've talked about before, roughly zones one through three. Though it's defined as being below your threshold. Okay, so that's your basically your endurance or low intensity zone when they talk about it in these studies. So you'll you'll hear me talk about zone one, and I don't mean recovery zone one in this reference, I mean this endurance zone one that's gonna encompass more of your zones one through three that we've talked about in the past. Okay. Zone two is very specific, it's very small. It's just right around threshold. So think about it as zone four in essence. And uh, like sweet spot to a little bit over threshold. I think that's fair. And then zone three in this polarized view of the world is what we would think about typically as zones five through seven. So super threshold efforts, anything where you're above threshold, that's what we're talking about as a zone three or a high intensity effort as we're going through these different studies and this setup for polarized training. Got it? Yep, I think I got it. So the first question I have to ask, I, I told you before we started recording that I had a question for you. And here's my question. You refuse to give me any hints. I want to clarify that as well. Yes, you're, you're going in blind on this question. And your question is this. If you had to break down your training into those three zones that I just described, what percentage of your training time would you put in each bucket? Uh, me personally, as in my past experience or yeah, uh, you yeah know, your, for a generic your personal, athlete? Let's do your personal experience, but I'd be curious to hear what your generic athlete take on it is as well. I would probably say 5% in zone three. Okay. Maybe 10, 15% in, in zone two. And but that leaves 80, 85% in zone one. And I'd probably say I'm even higher in zone one. I'm probably closer to 85, 90% in zone one. Does that answer your question? Eight, 80, does, 85% that... in zone one, mm -hmm. 10, 15% in zone two, and then okay. 5%, almost none in zone three. Okay, totally fair. Now I'm curious what you think the typical athlete breakdown is across those zones. 
So I think for a typical athlete, you'd probably see closer to 70% in zone one. I would say 20% in zone two, and then that leaves 10% in zone three. That seems okay. to make more sense to me. Okay. I agree largely with your distribution, particularly for yourself, because zone three efforts are so short. It's hard to spend a lot of time in zone three because just the nature of those efforts are so short versus zone one. There's a lot, there's a lot of time in zone one. It's a big, broad zone. And the time you need to spend in that zone to get the train stimulus is much, much larger. So by default, I think you should end up there a little bit more. But with that said, I think generally speaking, we're probably smarter than the average bear when it comes to these things. I have good evidence. There's actually a research study that looked at this and they had these athletes, cyclists do a training program. And then they asked them, well, subjectively, what do you think? How much time do you spend in each of these zones? And then they actually measured it objectively using both heart rate and power data to quantify the different zones. Okay. So here we go. The athletes, when asked, said they spent only 45% of their time in zone one, 30% of their time in zone two, and 25% of their time in zone three. Now, let's get to the reality. If you do it based on heart rate, the heart rate data say they spent 87% of their time in zone one, 9% of their time in zone two, and the remaining 4% of their time in zone three. Hey, I was pretty close with my own this is This is pretty good. And if we look at the power data, again, it comes close to your numbers. It was 80% in zone one, 9% in zone two, and 11% in zone three, which I found interesting. That means they were doing some pretty hard efforts. Yeah, either- More than threshold. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah, either their heart rate wasn't getting up to that uh, zone three when they were doing zone three efforts, or they were spiking during their zone two efforts, and, yep. and then their power was sneaking into that zone three. Or, or a little bit of both, and that the heart rate response, the heart rate didn't respond to the effort. Right? The power responded instantaneously. You sprinted, and now you're in zone three but then the heart rate lagged behind a little bit. And I would say for um, even some of your VO2 max workouts, I, I'm under the assumption your heart rate wouldn't necessarily get all the way to the VO2 max zone because you're resting for 15 seconds after every 30 seconds. It does, but it builds over time. Okay, so, so you may the, see in that the first effect. few In the first few intervals, it, it definitely lags behind. And then as you build, you're doing 13 of those 30 second efforts. As you get towards five, six, on through 13, you don't have the recovery. So it's actually a very interesting sawtooth pattern, but then it's a sawtooth pattern on an inclined slope. Yeah, it's just slowly rising at during the undulations. Yep, exactly. Okay, so anyhow, what we see here is that riders spend a lot of time in zone one, but perhaps they're not aware they're spending that time in zone one. And relatively less, they spend you know, 15 to 20% of their time in zone two or zone three. So what does this all mean? Well, if you talk about a polarized approach, this is the whole idea is that you're mostly in zone one, 80 plus percent, and then you don't really spend a whole lot of time in the threshold zone, and then you have high intensity on the other end. That's the polarization is these two opposites, zone, zone one and zone three. So that's just asking amateurs what happens when you look at data from elite level cyclists and elite level endurance athletes. 
So it turns out an elite cyclist, if you look at base training, this shouldn't come as a surprise. 88% of the time is spent in the zone one. Not surprising, right? Mm -hmm. That makes, makes total sense. 11% in zone two and 2% in zone three. Okay, that seems reasonable. As you move into the pre-competition phase, you're looking at 78% still in zone one. You bump up your threshold to 17% and then have 5% in zone three. And then even in competition, again, I think this is fascinating, even competition, your zone one is still 77% of your training with 15% at threshold and 8% now moves into zone three. So really, even in a competition phase for elite cyclists, still almost 80% of their efforts live in zone one in this model. Well, I can give a little bit of insight into that. I know for many of my rides, it'll be an hour and a half, two hours of VO2 max training, but we'll put an hour on the front at endurance and an hour at the finish of endurance. And so you end up getting a lot of endurance on that day, even though it's a VO2 max day. So I can definitely see this 80% being zone one, just if you look at the total volume spent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And even depending on how you count it, and I'll get to a, another study in a bit, if you include the rest intervals in your training, then those are all zone one for the most part. Yep, absolutely. So you're, you're going to end up back down in zone one there as well. So I guess one takeaway that I found interesting from the, the amateur cyclists when they asked them how much time they spent in each zone, I think it's important for people who sort of willy-nilly pick their workouts or don't have such a rigid approach to their training. And if you don't analyze afterwards and look at this distribution of zones, you may think you're doing a lot of high, high intensity work, or you may think you're you know, not doing much high intensity work. And you may be right, but it seems like most likely you're, you're probably wrong and you think you're doing a lot of high intensity when in reality, you're probably doing less than you think. Yeah, to your point, Jason, that feels to me like the athletes were thinking in the number of training sessions over time they did in these different zones. Half of my training sessions end up being in, you know, focused on these lower zones. One out of four is in this higher zone. One out of three was in my threshold zone, roughly, as opposed to the actual time spent in those zones. Okay, that's a, a reasonable explanation, but you, we are still training that zone one, even if, you know, during that hour after our VO2 max mm -hmm. interval. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I wonder if it's also some psychological shortcut. It's easier to organize in days versus organize in time. And so, Todd, what does this have to do with polarized training? Our, probably that our perception is wrong, that we're, we are closer to polarized training than we thought. Anyhow, the, the polarized training probably isn't that much of an adjustment from what we're already doing at baseline. And if, if we go back to the Premlab study, the, mm -hmm. the comparison was... Um, endurance riders who only did endurance only did zone one, basically another mm -hmm. group that only did zone two and a third group that only did zone three. And mm -hmm. the group that did some of each of these three zones performed better across the board than mm -hmm. any of the individual zones. And that's right. We found this particularly, particularly interesting because the zone two group, which was only doing threshold performed worse on the threshold test than the group that did a variety of workouts. And that didn't really make sense because if they're focusing only on their threshold, they should be able to improve that faster. 
And so that's sort of what's weird. And I guess what you're getting at is we do a lot of polarized training and it's more effective. This variety is more effective than flatness of, yes. of the workouts. And so I'm going to throw a couple more things out here and then we're going to take a deep dive into that, into some of the parameters of that study to really understand what polarized training looks like across the week and how that might look different than what you're used to in your typical training protocols. Okay. Let's see here. Interesting factoid. The Team Pursuit world record from the year 2000, their training program was 94% zone one by this definition. Wow. <laughs> Four, 4% zone two and about 2% zone three. Well, the uh, Team Pursuit is a VO2 max. Uh, <laughs> Team Pursuit is a VO2 max effort. It's it's four minutes as hard as you can go. That's square yeah. in the VO2 max zone. Why are they doing 94% in zone one? I don't know, but obviously it worked, right? Yeah. That's, that's... Th So that's an observation. This is an observation to push you towards, well, maybe I should be doing more zone one. We already said you need to do your base training. We said that many times, but this is reiterating that philosophy and maybe that needs to persist throughout your your training here's another study now different sport but similar endurance sport speed skating and they looked at this this is a fascinating study it actually looked across 10 olympic cycles so it's over 30 years of training data that they were looking at mm -hmm. for these athletes and training protocols and of course it was dutch because they are masters of speed skating in 1972, their training protocol almost resembled that of the amateurs that we, the amateur cyclists. So their training protocol was 40% zone one, 40% zone two, and 20% zone three. They're going pretty hard. Yeah. A lot, right? That's, that's a lot of hard efforts. Fast forward to 2010 and their training protocol is over 85% zone one. Wow. And is that just now, because we understand the sports science better? Yes, I, that's what I believe it is. They understand the training effects. Now, the fascinating thing about this study is when they did that, they took out the rest interval time. So if you went out and did VO2 max intervals, and it was four minutes on, four minutes off, or something of the like, and it would break down to be 50% zone one, 50% zone three, they omitted the rest interval. Wow. So this, in theory, the way they did the study would have shifted things in favor of the higher zones from a, a mathematical standpoint, and they still come out with 85% zone one in and, 2010. And speed skating is one, two, three minute events. Am, am I correct? No, they go up to uh, 10K, so that can be much longer. Okay. Well, in terms of total event but time, it's, it's still like but 10. It's shorter than... Uh, cycling race okay it's like a scratch race in in length almost yeah it's it's gonna be shorter even than an off park criterium yeah and that's so interesting that 85 percent not including rest intervals so total raw time at least 90 percent in endurance zone and this is for some of the most high intensity athletes that could correlate to cycling and that mm -hmm. so now the putting this all into context, it makes a lot more sense that we're seeing 94, 95% in endurance zone for professional cyclists because they're doing even more 
long events and even longer mm-hmm. events. Is the total volume the same? Or are they using zone one as a way to get more time on the ice or more time on the bike in order to get a greater training adaptation? So that's the nice thing about the study we'll dive into in a little bit is that they basically controlled for time. The time is very similar across the study across the study conditions. So you, you'd, you'd be hard pressed to say that it is purely driven by time. Okay. And they actually showed in this speed skating study that the training time, it actually looked like it went down a little bit over time, the sum mm-hmm. of, your, of the training time. Yeah, that's interesting. From uh, one of the books I read that um, Chris Carmichael wrote, he said the original training that he did with Lance Armstrong was very focused on these incredibly hard workouts, these workouts where they just tried to get the lactate buffering as good as it could get, the ability to withstand really acidic muscle, you know, 14 millimoles of uh, lactic acid in the muscles is really high amounts of lactic acid. And this may help us understand that that was an older way to view athletics was the ability to withstand these high acidic levels. If, if you're not doing as much high intensity work, you can't resist the lactic acid as well, but maybe you can do something else because we are seeing athletes even stronger than they used to be. So last bit about speed skating, and I'll get back to cycling and things we're more familiar with. From 1972 to 2010, the world record times reduced by 18%. And as you and I both know, that it, when you start to work with high velocity and aerodynamics, that is not an 18% change in power. They actually worked it out and said that's equivalent to a 57% increase in power. However, they noted that approximately 50% of the changes they think is due to improvements in technology over time. And we okay. see that in all sports. And we've seen changes in swimming, changes track and field, changes in cycling, certainly with technology over time. But they thought that 50%, so 50% is tech, that leaves 50% athletic improvement, which I would take to mean that roughly that's a 30% increase in power yeah. over the event. By, yeah, sure. Do we? There may be other pieces there in terms of learning more about diet and training and rest and other science improvements that you could maybe shift towards tech, but some of these are clearly related to the training. That's not tech alone. That's not diet alone. There's something happening with this shift in training that's allowing potentially a 30% improvement in power. And I don't think that athletes in 2010 are so, so much better off genetically than athletes were in 1972. Yeah, I, I don't think the genetics argument uh, quite holds too much water. One thing that I see, like if I'm going to play devil's advocate and try and show that this uh-huh. isn't that great of a study, did they look at changes in strength training patterns? My one guess could be that the high intensity work was offset into the weight room rather than on the ice. And uh-huh. that was a potential way that they got their high intensity, even though it didn't wasn't recorded in the same way. I did not... I don't not recall seeing that in described in the study. This seemed to be more focused on the particular aerobic training. They did look at things like on ice versus inline skating, and they didn't suggest that there was a significant difference there. Uh, they, you know, they started to say, well, there was a point where it was hard to have ice year round, but we have it now. And they didn't think that was a huge improvement okay. relative to the other factors that, you know, they were, they were certainly pushing on the 
changes in training and we're a big driver in what's happened over time. Yeah, and, and to uh, devil's advocate, my own devil's advocate, I would say they seemed very thorough with the research. And if the strength training was dramatically different, they would have probably noted that. It's possible it wasn't recorded, but or maybe not recorded accurately enough to comment on as well. What about polarized training for cyclists? What do we get out of doing this? And what sort of protocol might we follow in order to see these results? So it's been shown in both six or six weeks and nine weeks in trained cyclists to improve our peak power output, our um, high intensity exercise tolerance in terms of time to exhaustion, as well as uh, VO2 max, an important performance indicator for endurance sport. So particularly with the nine week study, I think this is a solid study. Now it's not all cyclists. It is all endurance athletes. So they had some runners, cyclists and cross-country skiers involved, men and women, which I think is nice. So you can see it, it applies across gender and across sport. The range of VO2 max was 52 to 75. So it's, it's wide, but you know that peak VO2 max for elite female athletes is, tends to be a little bit lower than for male athletes. So I think that's an acceptable range. The average was 63. Okay. This is a good, to me, this feels like a good study. Now, one critique is maybe that you had four different groups and multiple sports. So what's the number of athletes per sport in each group? That could be small. It's feasible that you had one cyclist, one male, one female cyclist in one group. And so maybe we're grasping a little bit to say that this works really well for cyclists, depending on how they got distributed. But that aside, I think if you take it to be applied to endurance sport, then you should feel fairly comfortable with how they conducted this study. So I'm going to go through the not polarized protocols first, just so we have background there and understand what they were doing, what they're comparing to. And then we'll dive into the polarized and how that looks compared to things that we're used to and things that we've talked about before. So high volume, low intensity protocol is fairly straightforward. They had three days per week where they were simply training 90 minutes in that zone. They had twice per week uh, where they were training between two and a half to four hours in the zone. And that depended on which sport they were doing. So for the running, it was on the shorter end. For the cycling, it was on the longer end. And I think that makes sense and is consistent with the sport you're participating in. And then they had one day per week where they were doing some threshold intervals either five by seven minutes and then progressing towards three times 15. And each of these different protocols were two weeks on one week recovery ish. The high intensity one was a little weird. So okay. that's, that was the basic high volume endurance protocol. The threshold protocol was two days, 60 minutes working at threshold with intervals of five times six in the first segment and then moving towards six times eight mm. then one day where they were doing initially nice 90 minute workout initially was three times 15s and they moved up to three times 20s one day 75 minutes where they were doing fartlek training so variable intervals but at that around that zone two intensity fartlek is the uh, the guy who wanted you to sprint up the hills right in your I regular runs yes roughly it's just to have some variability in the training, variability okay. intensity. 
And well, I think I think his original premise for his athletes was just do your normal route, and when you get on a hill, sprint or go harder. And then you have my high school cross country coach who applied this by having a whistle at practice. Yeah, I've done that on the track. You sprinted in between whistles. Yeah, when I did um, track racing, like cycling racing, they they did the same thing of um, one, two, three, where Mm -hmm. they would blow their whistle once, you went slowly, twice moderate, and then three was full gas. Yeah, we just had on or off. You were like endurance pace or basically zone ones and zone three, what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. That's awful. (laughs) Well, yeah, because you never knew when the whistle was going to blow again. And then the last two days of that, week were uh, two sessions, 90 minutes at low intensity. So these aren't crazy workouts, but it is consistent with what their goal was. The first one's very much volume, low intensity. This one is very much looking at threshold. And now the high intensity training protocol, I'm going to be honest with you, this sounds brutal. I'm not interested in doing this. I'm not interested and anyone who's listening to us trying this. But nonetheless, these people signed up for the research and they did it. So they had, rather than this two weeks on, one week off, they did two 16-day blocks. They did 12 high-intensity sessions in 15 days. Mm-hmm. And then had three consecutive days. So it'd be three days on and then one recovery day. So three consecutive high-intensity workouts, a little recovery day. And then there was an adaptation week in the middle, which had just a modest two high-intensity sessions, three times 90 minutes at low zone one intensity, and then one day, two hours at zone one. And all of their high-intensity interval sessions, so if it wasn't bad enough that you had to do these workouts three days in a row, they were all the same. They were a 20-minute warm-up, followed by four times four minutes at 90 to 95% of your peak heart rate. Yeah, I mean, that's how you get your VO2 max up, right? Just, yeah, uh, it is. The total volume, the total amount of time spent at VO2 max was very high in these athletes. 16 minutes, three days in a row. That, that sounds like a rough protocol. And so th- these were the three groups, or was there a fourth? Well, those are those are three. Number four is the polarized group. Okay. The, the magic bullet here in this study. So we had, in a week, two 90-minute sessions in zone one. No big deal there two two and a half hour to four hour sessions in zone one with six maximal effort sprints five seconds long with at least 20 minutes of recovery between and then i i'm not quite sure the utility of those sprints but they're there nonetheless well how i think it's how else are you going to get the zone three well well that's even higher than but wait there's two more workouts left okay Two uh, two high intensity sessions similar to the above, so these four by four minutes of VO two max intervals. So you had VO two max workouts, and you know, and you know, the thing about it is like this is not that much time. So that's two hours right there, eight hours for the two long rides, and then another three hours. So and well, there's no dedicated threshold day, is there? No, nothing, not at all, zero. And so it's I think- all it's all above or below. Yeah, I think that's the biggest point in this polarization. So I was going to ask originally, what's the difference between the polarization or polarized training protocol and the the second one that you explained? Because the threshold protocol. Yeah. So they both did a few ninety minute days. They both did a few long days. Is that correct? Um, 
So the threshold didn't do any long days. Their longest was 90 minutes. Okay. The the high intense or the high volume protocol had the two long days and they didn't have any sprints involved and all they they did have one day at threshold, but nothing above threshold. Okay. So high volume was mostly zone one, touching the zone two. Threshold was some zone one and mostly zone two. High intensity, extensively all high intensity Just stuff with a couple of with a couple of recovery days mixed in there. And now this one is zone one and zone three. Okay. Which and is super it's super interesting. They covered most of the combinations that you could. What were the results? So we talk a lot about you know, watts per kilo, so power to weight ratio. Interestingly, with the high intensity protocol, body mass reduced by four percent. So that's that's sort of interesting. Well, I wish we knew if it was muscle mass or fat mass. Good point. Or it was completely depleted glycogen storage. <laughs> yeah, it could have been uh, just not having any energy in your body. Their VO2 peak, so not VO2 max, and that's sometimes what we see in studies. We have VO2 peak because we're not sure it's actually the maximum value. So VO2 peak improved over baseline almost 12%, 11.7% for the polarized group. And yes, I know that's not the be-all, end-all of performance. What? Sorry, you said polarized group. Was that correct, the polarized group or the VO2 max group? Uh, the polarized group improved their VO2 peak okay. by 11.7%. And then the high-intensity group, so this this is also going to shock you. The high-intensity group, who's only training VO2 max, basically, only improved 5%. Okay, so they got an extra 7% because they did fewer VO2 max workouts, and they did more uh -huh. long workouts. Yeah, I mean, they did a quarter the number of VO2 max workouts. And they saw a 7% greater increase. They saw twice as much stimulus. They saw over twice as much increase in their VO2 max. And maybe? Almost 12% versus 5%. We should be doing fewer, uh, fewer VO2 max intervals, I think. Yeah, perhaps. The, and so also better time trial performance. I didn't take the exact numbers, but it was significantly better. And there's a subsequent systematic review that also shows improved time trial performance when you have polarized training versus other approaches to training. So what do we make of this? How do we decide if our individual workout plan is leaning too much towards that lots of high intensity intervals? Or you know, how do we know if we are approximating the polarized training or if we're approximating one of these other groups that isn't as effective? I'm going to throw one more stat out there, and I'm going to answer that question. Okay. I think this one's interesting. And I think this is the key pain point that you're, you're touching on but haven't said explicitly, which is this looks at Ironman triathletes, and the study found that they spent approximately 58% of their race in zone two, this zone two, but they do better, they perform better when you do polarized training, which in theory, would violate the principle of training specificity because they didn't train that zone at all, even though they spend most of their race in it and they perform better. And I think there's some tension around that. Of course, like any good research study, they said more investigation is needed. But I think there's some tension around that because I think we want to believe from everything we've read that 
well, if I want to improve my threshold, I need to practice at threshold. If I want to improve my time trial, and if I want to improve this certain part of my fitness, I need to specifically train that. And this polarized approach is saying, no, not really. Train high and train low and be done with it. Wow. I think that's crazy. And the biggest thing here is that um, from our, you know, how to improve your FTP on five to six hours, I included a threshold workout every week, one threshold workout. And um, well, maybe we need to go back and edit that episode. So I don't know. There is still some hope for that because I did see looking at half Ironman athletes, a little shorter time, still over four hours, that for amateurs and recreational level athletes, they actually did better if they focused more on threshold. So there may be a time effect where this looks like 13 hours per week to do the polarized protocol here. If you have less than that, if you have six hours a week, you may actually do better. You may get more fitness benefit from doing the specific threshold training intervals and training specifically to the things that are important. And there may be it looks like maybe there's a break point around 10 hours. I don't know if the polarized training can be condensed more, but it may be possible there's some break point in trade-off where if you have less time, you focus on the intensity. And if you have more time, you can do a little bit of intensity, but focus on the lower intensity, building the aerobic base. And there's a certain irony to this because I remember really early on when I was starting as a cyclist, one of my mentors, I was asking about interval training and he made the comment to me, and this is so, so funny to come back to this now. He made the comment to me, well, you only really need to do intervals if you don't have time to do long rides. And I didn't understand it at the time. I was like, okay, well, whatever you say, I guess I should just do more <laughs> long rides. You, you know more than I do. And now looking at this, it's like, oh, well, clearly he knew something. Uh, this wasn't research back then, or at least not to this level, but clearly he was on to something with that comment. Yeah, and you're a little bit older than me, but I had a similar experience three years ago when um, I came to California and the roads and the mountains around here allow you to go on these four, five hour endurance rides. And it was only when I moved here when I really started to get fast. I did one winter of a, a lot of endurance training and it was the same thing. Just the numbers could grow so much quicker. And uh, yeah, very similar experience of... Uh, the volume, the volume is kind of where it's at. So where does that leave us in terms of how should I train? What makes sense for me? I'm going to throw out a number and I don't know if it's true or not true. This is where I'm speculating, looking at some of these numbers and things that we know and don't know. But I'm imagining if you have less than 10 hours a week, you're probably going to skew towards very specific, making sure you're doing your threshold type training to get maximum benefit. Of course, you need to do your base training. I don't think no one gets a free pass on base training. And if you have more time, then I think you may do better to skew towards this polarized approach. And it seems to hold from short events like the team pursuit all the way up to really long events like an Ironman and show better performance. Hmm. And actually, even on that topic, uh, I don't know, one of the recent uh, Tour of Poland results, the Mads Pedersen, the world champion, won mm -hmm. the sprint. 
and it was a flat sprint and they just lined it up for him and this guy's a road racer he's he's not a sprinter he's he's like a one-day classics rider and it's it's almost like fitness is fitness and what's the best way to get that fitness up is it seems like polarized training if you have the time for it the evidence would suggest it and i think the interesting thing is this isn't a crazy amount of training I, 13 hours a week is a commitment there's no doubt about that but it to get a 12% increase in your VO2 max, that's pretty substantial. Well, I think I hit that, but it was like three months and it included weight loss. Uh, and that's how mm-hmm. I, I got the, the higher watts per kilo. Um, and so this is nine, nine weeks. Yeah, it, they are probably um, relatively lower trained. But um, yeah, big, you know, any double digit improvements are worth turning your head for. So um, if you are looking to see improvements, seriously consider this zone one, zone three sort of workout style. Yeah, I, I certainly think it's worth some further investigation, looking, maybe having a conversation with your coach. If you have a coach of, is this worth investigating? Nine weeks is a couple cycles. So if you tried it, it wouldn't totally derail anything in your training if it was only a modest effect. So I think implemented prudently, most riders could probably do this and see if it works for them. I'm pretty impressed with this, actually. And I have always followed the traditional seven zones and um, the periodization model that we talked about a few episodes ago, always followed that to the T. And I'm wondering if, uh, if there are ways to change that. I know one year we looked at my, my by zones training in the same way that, you know, this zone one, two, three sort of thing. And I remember one year I was like 94% zone one. And I always thought that was way too high. I wanted more time at threshold because I, I don't have a great threshold relative to my other numbers. And maybe it's a bit misleading again to think that you'd have to train an FTP to improve your FTP. Maybe I should be looking to make that 94% zone one into 90% zone one and putting that 5% into VO2 max intervals or even higher intervals rather than trying to put it into threshold intervals. Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable. And I can speak to one of my experiences. I had a crazy bike commute one time for six weeks where I was, just, we'll just say I was riding about two hours each way, five days a week. So roughly 20 hours a week. Wow. Of just commuting. commuting. You had a backpack, so I, right? I had a backpack. I wasn't going fast because I saw the work eight hours when I got there sure. and get home and, and eating a lot. And I had, I raced some of the best criteriums after that. And the only thing I can say is every now and then I'd get motivated and sprint through a yellow light because I didn't want to wait. Mm. You, you know, the, you know, the lights on your commute route that are long. Like, oh, that one's about to turn yellow. I'm going to sprint pretty hard to get through that so I can not have to wait. Yeah, save five minutes. Yeah, yeah. And so there's your zone three. There's your zone one, your zone three. I've raced really well. And so is it volume or was it that it was polarized or was it both? Who knows? But it is interesting to reflect back on that, having read through this and say, huh, wonder why that happened. Wonder how that worked out in that Mm -hmm. way. Yeah, once you connect these these dots of these different experiences, I'm I'm pretty convinced that I need to investigate polarized training more and um, see if we can get some more benefits. So I I, I have the time to do the training. Um, it'd be great to at least have the protocol, uh, do the protocol for one or two of these mesocycles and 
see what happens. So with that in mind, I have all the links to these research articles and the one that has the protocols in it is actually an open access one. So you can read through the whole thing and see it and we'll include that in the notes as well as the other ones if you're really interested in this and you just have to read more. It is interesting stuff, but if you just wanted to skip the training protocol and say, I'm gonna train this way and follow this to the T, that'll be super accessible through the link and the paper so you can figure out how exactly they went about this. Okay, very cool. And uh, we, we've hit all the studies, we've hit all the conversation points, I assume. Got all the, all the stuff that I had prepared. Okay, so uh, for all of you listening, thanks for taking the time to listen. Uh, if you like what we do, you can give us a review, you can give us a share, that helps us get to more people, and hopefully we can all turn into bike nerds, uh, pulling out studies for our uh, weekend rides or races. And uh, Todd, do you have anything else? No, but as I always say, until next time, keep the rubber side down.